Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 10 of the Strictly NFL podcast. No Jeff today, but as you guys can see, to the very awesome guy on my right over here, Mr. John Schmelk, um, we got a fantastic guest today. So um, you guys know him from the Giants pre and post games. And yeah, John, how we doing? I'm much take from here. Nah, man, it's good. How you doing? It's, I'm happy to be on with you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Um, so before we get into, you know, our football talk, I just want to remind everybody that the Strickland has a, an Instagram at the strick.land. Uh, the Strickland YouTube is obviously the Strickland and we have a Patreon, a $3 tier, a $6 tier and a $9 tier. The full length episode of this podcast is behind the $9 tier. Um, $3 tier gets you access to our discord where we talk football, basketball pretty much all day, every day, especially on Sundays. I'm in there a lot on Sundays. Um, and the $6 tier for the, I believe, Strick and Roll podcast, which Wynn does by himself. So with that stuff out of the way, obviously, big weekend for New York sports and football. Giants-Jets, ugly game. Honestly, to me, though, I found it pretty entertaining with a lot of the, a lot of the mishaps for both teams in this game. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, look, certainly a lot to talk about, right? I mean, it was a game where every possession mattered because if you scored, you felt like the other team wasn't going to be able to score to keep up with you, so every point mattered. And look, I think the Giants played it the right way, and you know the last 30 seconds came, and they allowed a couple big plays. They made a couple critical mistakes, allowed the Jets back into the game, just took advantage of those opportunities. And when you play close games in the NFL, that's what happens, right? Like one or two plays here or there can kind of turn a game at the end, and it turned away from the Giants and, and towards the Jets. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I've seen a lot of discussion over the uh, day ball decision to kick the field goal on fourth and one near the end of the game. And, you know, I understand Gano's hurt and, you know, X, Y, and Z. He missed earlier, apparently, from that side of the game, uh, of the field and uh, warmups. But to me, that's that's an easy decision, honestly. And, and I'm not really a guy who, who loves kicking on fourth and one. But in that spot, I've seen a lot of criticism uh, about that decision, and I don't agree with the critics. I think uh, I think that was the right play. Yeah, I always err on the side of being aggressive too. And I thought their their longer field goal in the first half, I think it was forty seven yards. I would have considered going for it on that one. And at the yeah. time, we talked about it. Jonathan Casillas and I talked about it at halftime on the air. But look, it's a thirty five yard field goal. You make that kick. I know game not technically over, but game over. I mean. The Jets aren't going the length of the field to score a touchdown in 20 seconds with no timeouts. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So I, I had no problem kicking the field goal there. I understand the argument the other way. I don't think it's a, you know, grand slam decision every time type of deal. I, I could see both arguments to, to, to go both ways. Uh, you know, coin toss maybe, you know. So I, I get why people are upset about that, but I'm with you. Look, you have a field goal kicker like Graham Gano, and I know he struggled this year. He has leg injury, all that stuff. You have to if he's going to be active for you and he's going to be your kicker, you have to trust him to make a thirty-five yard kick. And he talked after the game. He said, "Look, I got to make it," and yeah. he has to make it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else you're supposed to do, but uh, a thirty-five yard kick is like a 90 percent play in the National Football League, maybe ninety-five percent, and converting a fourth and one is not. 
So I think it's 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 really that simple. Yeah, unless you're the Eagles nowadays, right? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the reason for the hesitancy to go on those plays is probably the fact that we ran earlier and JMS got hurt. I mean, I don't agree with that kind of idea because injuries are pretty random, um, and I I usually subscribe to that thinking. Um, I I don't really like the term, the term injury prone, even though I've seen them thrown around a lot for Aziz recently. Um, but yeah, I mean. I think if the excuse for not going for it with the tush with the tush push is you don't practice it a lot, I think you should maybe throw it in once or twice, you know, at the end of a week or something. Like you know, the guys don't don't go nuts. You know, we're just going to simulate this a little. Put you know, just practice it slow. Don't don't kill nobody. Yeah, I mean, even just do a traditional quarterback sneak then, right? Or you yeah. can give it to Saquon Barkley. You can pick either one of those two. And the Giants in third and ones this year have actually been pretty good. They're, I think they're on 80, like maybe an 80% conversion rate, something like that. So they've actually been pretty good yeah. on third and ones. But I believe, I believe last, it was 79. Sorry. 79, yeah. That sounds about right. Like and, and But the last couple weeks, I, I, I'm guessing it's because of all the moving parts on the offensive line. And they were stopped on third and short three times. I believe it was the Buffalo game three weeks ago. And since then, Brian Dable, I feel like, has not been as confident in trying to convert some of those third and ones. Maybe now with Daniel Jones coming back, the offensive line knock on wood look like it finally is starting to get healthier. And with Saquon back a couple weeks, maybe they're going to have start having a little bit more confidence trying to convert some of those third and shorts. Yeah, uh, I, I like where you took this conversation, right? I'm an O-line guy. I played O-line when I was playing football. So you can tell by my name, you know, in the bottom corner, please save us, Andrew Thomas. I, it's, 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 getting, it's been ugly. It's been real bad. But I'm very cautiously optimistic of how this line's going to shape up once he comes back. I think, you know, whether you put Pew at left guard or right guard, and, you know, Bredesen obviously fills the, the second guard spot, um, there's, there's a decision to be made at right tackle, right, with Tyree Phillips and Evan Neal, even though I personally would just go Neal. Um, That's what I think they'll do, by the way. I think when Neal's yeah. out, they'll go back in there. And I think yeah. it'll be, if it's me, by the way, I would put Glowinski in one of the guard spots. He's been very good since he's he struggled against Dallas week one. It was yeah. a disaster. Yeah. But since he's come back the last few weeks, I honestly think he's been their best offensive lineman. So I would have a as, – as much as Pew has helped them, and I like his veteran presence, I would have a hard time taking Glowinski out of the lineup. But I do think that's an interesting conversation. With Schmidt's back, if Thomas comes back, who are your two guards? And I'm very curious. I don't, I'm not sure what they're going to do, to be honest with you. I'm curious to see how they choose between Bredis and Glowinski and Pew in that spot. Yeah, I think he's been pretty great in the past game, which is not something I thought I would be saying. Uh, in the run, yeah, Golinski. Yeah, yeah, he's been fantastic. It's unbelievable, and it, it gives me kind of a weird feeling with him and Neil on the right side because when when Neil and him are in there together, I brought this up on an earlier episode of the podcast. They can never communicate. That that's what it seems. And then when there's Golinski in there, just you know, without Neil next to him. He plays much better. When I Neil's wonder in there, if Lewinsky tries to do a little bit too much to help Neil. And I wonder if that's part of him trying to do a little bit more than what his job is. You know, he sees Neil out there. He's maybe having some issues, young player. He might be trying to do a little bit too much out there. But I, I think I think you're seeing it the right way. Yeah. And I also feel like it kind of goes both ways. Like when Lewinsky wasn't there uh, week two or maybe it was week three. But there was a, a couple of weeks where I thought Neil was improving with um, – with McKeithen next to him. That was week two against Arizona, I believe. Is what yeah. Mm-hmm. So, 
it's just a weird dynamic. And I think the best version of this Giants line is both of them getting on track together on that right side. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how it plays. It's going to be interesting because they have big commitments to both of those guys. Yeah, and I, I, you know, Glowinski, I think you can get out of his deal after this year if you want. Uh, it's a small cap hit, I think. I have to double check that. But you know, he signed a three-year deal. He's already served two of them. So usually that yeah. last year, you, you know, you, you can get out, get out of that with uh, minimal pain. But look, and and Evan Neal has to play better too, right? I mean, he just has to be more consistent. He has to not let guys beat him around the edge. Then he started watching the edge more. He started getting beat inside more. He got to take advantage of some bull rush and some power in there because he's so worried about the edge. Uh, and this week, look, this is not the week you want to come back because Max Crosby is a freaking – I will quote Justin Pugh today when I talk to him about it. His, his first words out of his mouth, Max Crosby's a maniac. That's the word he used. Yeah. He called him a maniac. Yeah. The guy plays 97% of the Raiders' defensive plays as a defensive end. Uh, for fans that don't understand how insane that is, <laughs> that is insane. Oh, you, look, you, you look at the league leaders in snap counts on defense. It's hard to find, but I, I can access it. He is the only – him and Aiden Hutchinson are the only two defensive linemen of like the first 20 guys on the list. Everyone else is middle linebackers that don't leave the field or defensive backs that don't leave the field. Yeah. Defensive linemen simply do not do that. His motor is unbelievable. He's a great athlete. He's long. He's tough. He's violent. Uh, he is, and he almost always lines up over the right tackle around 80, 90% of the time. So, uh, whoever plays right tackle this week, God bless and good luck. Yeah. I think the motor there is the, is the biggest part of what you're talking about. Obviously he's, you know, if people don't watch Max Crosby, he's elite with his hands and, and his swipes and, and whatnot, but he doesn't it's like, man, you know, he'll get around the edge quarterback will step up. And then he's still the first guy to get into that quarterback, even after yeah. they, you know, adjust uh, their place in the pocket. So it's going to be hard. It's also probably, you know, I understand the Jets this week and then the Cowboys the next week, but it's it's a bad kind of, you know, in baseball when you have a starter, you know, they kind of they try, they uh, try to like funnel you into three batters where they think you can succeed and kind of get yeah, through the inning. They do. It, it's a it's a pretty tough stretch of pass pass rushes for Daniel Jones to come back against, whether it was last week, this week against the, the Raiders, and the next week against the Cowboys, I believe. So, Yeah, look, then you get the commanders after that, and now they don't have their two defensive ends, so that's a little yeah. bit of a break. And other than Crosby, uh, and look, I think you got to put a tight end over there. Daniel Bellinger's yeah. got a chip. you got to put a running back over there. He's He's got a chip, yep. and you have to help. And let the other guys all go one-on-one, and I think you roll the dice there because no one else is – really much of a pass rush threat at all, to be quite honest with you. So I just think you got to help on that side. And, you know, at the very least, you know, next week's going to be a mess because Dallas, I mean, if you watched them beat up the Rams last week, Matthew Stafford would just got the, you know, what beat out of them all yep. game. And Dallas does that to pretty much everybody that's not the 49ers. So next week's going to be tough, tough. But then you get Washington, you get New England. Those aren't too bad. You come back, you get New Orleans and Green Bay, you know, not the worst. So, you know, then the Eagles come back down the pike, obviously, and, you know, they're always always tough. But uh, they'll, yeah. going into this year, a point I made on Big Blue Kickoff Live a lot was that uh, the Giants, according to a lot of the analytic models, face the toughest pass defense schedule in all of football, which combines secondary coverage and pass rush. And I think we've seen that early, right? They've just faced so many elite defenses, and the Giants had the worst possible injuries, the worst possible spots against those matchups, and I think that's kind of what's – that's the reason they're averaging 11 points per game, which is obviously disastrous. Yeah, I think a lot of the conversation is, 
or at least a lot of the conversation that I've heard is, you know, Joe Shane didn't address the line. Joe Shane didn't get us weapons. Joe Shane, yeah, X, Y, Z. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to separate my actual analysis from, you know, being a big fan of Joe Shane. And all I'm thinking is like, he drafted Evan Neal. I would have done nothing different. Evan Neal to me was a slam dunk. Glowinski, love him or hate him, I thought he was a solid signing. Drafted two guards in Azudu, McKeithen. Drafted JMS. I don't know how anybody can say he ignored this line. Yeah, you, it, can make the argument that he didn't, sure. you can make the argument he didn't execute the plan well enough, right? And maybe he picked guys that they wouldn't pick. But I'm with you. Like, Evan Neal was my number one tackle that year. I was thrilled when he dropped him. Agreed. I had him ahead of Aquano. I had him ahead of Charles Cross. Um, I, I've been a little baffled by how much he struggled in his first year and a half, to be honest with you. Um, hopefully he can figure it out the way Andrew Thomas did. None of that's guaranteed. Obviously, every player is different. But no, they've put resources into the line. You know, I got these same arguments and phone calls from fans five years ago, and they're like, the Giants never addressed the offense. I'm like, no, they did. Look, they drafted Justin Pugh in the first round. They drafted Eric Flowers in the first round. They drafted Weston Richburg in the second round. Then you go down the list, it's just that the guys didn't work out. Yeah. Right, so it, it, there's a difference between guys not working out and not addressing it, and I do think they address the offensive line. But to your point, you know, two weeks ago, I believe it was the Bills game when they went to that game and they rolled out their offensive line. They had nine players that played offensive line in our initial 53-man roster. Nine, three were left healthy in that game against the Bills. Three out of nine. That's a 67% attrition rate. I mean, there is, there, is, there is not a team in the sport that can survive that. Exactly. Effective on the offensive line. Yeah, exactly. And I agree. And, you know, it's not just that six of them got hurt, right? It's that six of them got hurt, one being, in my opinion, the second best, maybe third best left tackle in the sport. Yeah, of course. So, It's not it's not a one to one comparison. You know, the Niners lost Trent Williams for one week. Look how it bothered them, right? So uh another big point uh you know, viewing point in this game for me was Banks and uh, Garrett Wilson. You know, I know Wilson finished the game hundred yards in total. I think he had about seventy one of those in coverage, uh, or beating Banks in coverage. But for the most part I thought Banks' highs were high and I thought his lows were lows, and that's pretty consistent with who he's been. It gives me no reason to kind of, you know, be against him or think that performance was bad. Yeah, I thought it was the same thing against Terry McLaurin the week before, right? And when you're mm-hmm. gonna ask a guy to play a lot of man on man press man coverage, I think that's what you're gonna get. Right? You're gonna get a lower completion rate, but I think some of those completions are, are gonna be back breaking plays sometimes. And you saw that against Washington, McLaurin had those two thirty yard catches. And we saw Garrett Wilson make those big catches in that game. Now, that 29-yarder over the middle, they're funneling him to the middle there. That's not a Deontay Banks problem. That You know, you want him to catch the ball in the middle of the field there, let yeah. the clock run. The problem is that Kayvon Thibodeau went off sides and the clock didn't run. So I'm not going to get on Banks for that. I think the, the biggest criticism for me of Banks, and I think he knows this, is that he's committed six penalties already this year. Three of them have been accepted. He's very grabby down the field. Yeah, uh, He generally accepted that one interception. And remember, he was in zone coverage on that. He wasn't playing man. When he plays man coverage, he does not get his head around and locate the football. Uh, he tends to face guard, and he tends to grab. And we saw that against Garrett Wilson on that slant last week over the middle when he you know, held his back arm down. And a lot of times, he's in such a good position, he doesn't have to grab. Exactly. But, but he just it's, it's just yes. part of his physicality. And he, he doesn't have that mental, that five-yard mental thing in his head yet where he knows to stop doing stuff at five yards. Mm-hmm. He'll just do it eight yards and nine yards. And frankly, I think he's gotten away with 
two or three this year that weren't even called. So that's something he's going to have to clean up because teams will see that on tape. And if you don't think if the Raiders are watching this week and they're like, oh, well, if you get Devontae Banks on, Deon, on uh, if you get DeAndre Banks on, Deontay Banks on, Devontae Adams, one on one with no help, they're just going to throw it to Adams and trust him to either make a catch yeah. or draw a penalty. And they'll do that again and again and again if the Giants choose to put him on man to man coverage there. My guess is they're going to do a lot of double teaming, which I think would make a lot of sense, but we'll see how they handle that. Yeah. And that was probably the biggest knock on his. Prospect profile come out yep. of Maryland. That and the kind of lack of zone coverage that he played over there. Um, but you've seen it, right? You know, it's it's also funny that it's a pretty blatant flag when he commits them to. Oh that, yeah, it's not even thing. close. <laughs> yeah. So so that but the reason why I bring this up is because the fact that they trust him to play man, obviously he's a first round pick and all that stuff, that speaks volumes to me. So you know, he's getting beat now. I think going forward, year two, year three, year four, this stuff is not going to be something that we, you know, come back and keep harping on. At least I don't think so. But this is um, te- Look, this is teachable stuff, right? Exactly, yes. If he was getting beat or he wasn't physical enough, and those are things that you're right, well, can we teach that to him? I'd much rather pull a guy back than have to get him to do more. So I yeah. agree with you. Some guys don't figure it out, but I, I think – the coaching here with Jerome Henderson is good enough in the secondary that they'll figure it out. I'm not long-term. I'm not worried about him, but short-term teams figuring out what his weaknesses are this year. You could have some more issues, but I'm with you long-term. I'm not worried at all. Yeah. And the Giants defensive staff in general from, from Andre Patterson with the D line, Jerome Henderson with the DBs, I believe John Egor. Yeah. Okay. Yep, sorry, sorry for butchering that. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a tough one, but with the, with the linebackers... Uh, and then you have Drew Wilkins, too, who does the edge guys. He's very good. Yeah, so I I, I speak so highly of this of this defensive staff. Yeah, I wish I could say the same for the offense. Um, but as, uh, now that you bring up Drew Wilkinson, the technique I've seen from Kayvon on the edge with his hands is day and night from week one, week two. Yeah, he's actually won a couple times outside, right? And it's not because of Burst and Ben. He's been good getting hands off of him, right? And I think we saw that uh, once against Miami, I think, or was it Washington? I think it was Washington. Miami had the two inside moves where he won. Washington had the one outside move where he won. Then he had two this past week against the Jets. And uh, he won inside a couple times early in the year, but you're right, we weren't seeing him win outside. I think he has because he's kind of gotten that swipe and rip thing going, which is well. Yeah, and – this isn't necessarily, you know, an outside move, but the move he put on Max Mitchell, I know that's, you know, it takes a lot of time and you really want to win fast on the edge, but that move he put on Max Mitchell was sick um, and really showcased all of the agility that you saw at Oregon, the first step, the quickness, and just showed he can win in the phone, in a phone booth in this league. And a lot of the talk week one to week four about, you know, lack of production, exactly, it was just talk. It is funny, though. He had two sacks against Washington. Uh, those were his only two pressures in the game. Then he had the three sacks against the Jets, and those were his only three pressures. Yeah. So yeah. Now there is that's good. That that's going to normalize now, right? No one has that type of sack conversion rate from pressure to sacks. That that's yeah. just not going to stay there because look. And I talked about this with Kayvon over the summer when we did one of our John Tittle podcasts, and you know we were talking about it, and you know we just had a discussion like getting a sack is very much out of the player's control, right? 
Mm-hmm. You can win, get there, the quarterback gets the ball out. There's nothing you can do. So the fact that he's getting all these sacks, I think the same way he had some bad luck last year not getting sacks, he's had some good luck this year getting sacks. Yeah. Right? I think it's kind of flip form a little bit. So I would not be surprised if this pace slackened a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not being productive, right? Because, again, sacks are out of players' controls a little bit. Yeah, and, I mean, eight and a half sacks through less than half the season, right? I mean, yeah. he's not going to finish with 18 and a half sacks, whatever he's on pace for, at least I don't think. But a lot of that, to me, is I think Kayvon is, is in a position to overperform his analytics because of the presence of Dexter Lawrence. Agreed. No, so, I'm with you. Look, and look, people talked about Thibodeau sacks in that game against the Jets, and rightfully so. He was great, made some real big plays, and he should have had the game clinching sack, right, if it wasn't for – the other stuff we already talked about after that. But that was as dominant a defensive performance from Dexter Lawrence as I've ever seen. Yeah, That guy was in the backfield on every single passing snap. The first jet center, killed him. Second jet center, killed him. Third jet center, killed him. And it, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was every guy. They threw yeah. three guys at him, and he killed them all. He had three-person body count, and he just he, <laughs> he, he killed them. And no one could stop him. Yeah. Uh, he was just as dominant against Washington. He was very good in that game, too. So, uh, you know, when a quarterback's getting pressured, you know, you can run the hoop around. If you're a defensive end, you kind of get pushed back into it. The quarterback has nowhere to step up into the pocket to escape you. So, agree 100%. You know, having that inside rush, if you're an outside rusher, it really makes all the difference. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I'm such a big advocate for Aziz to not um, – really get, for more or less of a better term, run out of town by this fan base for being hurt. I think Aziz is as good of a pass rusher right now as Kayvon is, in my opinion. I think he's a, I think Kayvon's a better overall player. I think Ojolari is actually a better pure pass rusher. To be honest. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really hoping that he can put some healthy games together and we can kind of put it into that narrative. But I, I can't, you know, last year – that four D lineman unit of Dex, Leo, Kayvon, Aziz, even though Leon, Leo's obviously gone, and we'll touch on that a little bit later, um, they were, by multiple stats, the best defensive line in football. And with the improvement that Kayvon, to me, has made in, in run defense this year, specifically after week three, you've been able to notice it a lot. I think, you know, Jordan Riley is the guy who I really like uh, as a project. And I think DJ Davison has shown a lot. Um, yeah. No, out of the potential Leo replacements to kind of step up and fill that role. Yeah, I'm curious to see what they do on passing downs, right? Because, you know, Nacho and Ashawn, they're more run stoppers and not really pass rushers. So, yeah. who's going to be that? Are they going to maybe they'll move Jihad Ward inside to the three tech when they go to try to rush the passer? I think that's possible. You know, DJ Davidson, I think, is another possibility. I think he's probably a little bit further along as a pass rusher than Jordan Riley is. So, I am curious to see what they do in terms of uh, getting that fourth pass rusher on the field in some of those sub packages. Yeah, I saw Jihad a good bit in the three tech this week uh, when they were dropping Isaiah Simmons down to the edge. Yep, uh, and, they, and they had Okereke mugged up at the line. So, look, Leo is I think in large part underrated by part, parts of this fan base now nowadays. Sure. Um, but the Giants have the bodies to replace him, specifically on early downs, as you said with Ashawn and Nacho. Um, and I guess we could just kind of talk about the trade a bit in terms of value. Sure. I I think. No, it's a home run. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen a couple people be like, you know, you don't want to cost Dex an All Pro spot by taking away his his partner, and I'm like, you make the trade. I'm like, are we talking about accolades or are we talking about building a program? Right, like like we were we were having this discussion a couple weeks ago. A couple fans called up Big Blue Kickoff Live and were like, oh, you know, you got to make these trades now. My point was, look, see how the Washington game goes. See how the Jet game goes. If you win both those games, you're in the mix, and then maybe you don't make a move, right? If you're sitting there at Three and five. Right now, I think the last NFC wild card spot might be an eight nine team. To be honest with you, it, it's pretty yeah. ugly when 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 you know when you look at the the past the top five teams in the conference. But I got to be honest with you. Even at three and five, that was such a high return for Leonard Williams. I might have made the trade anyway. To be totally yeah. honest with you, because I mean, I was thinking a fourth round pick even with picking up the money, to be honest with you. And to get a two and a five, uh, home run. I mean, it's it, they got more they got more back for him than they <laughs> traded for him. And he's three, yeah. three and a half years older. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and it's not like they didn't get service, right? Like, they got three legitimately really good years out of the guy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and to me, this also sparks – I am – I think most people would call me a Daniel Jones fan. I think – I just try to be as neutral as I can on, you know, our quarterback. I think this opens up a whole can of worms for the Giants potentially trading up. I think it made it a hundred times more likely. Well, I mean, you certainly have more ammunition, right? I mean, yeah. And, and Joe Shane has not been afraid to move and groove in the draft either. So I think, and before we, I think, and we're going to start getting these calls to on our shows in house. And, and my answer is going to be very similar. You have nine games here to figure out what you're going to do, and you yeah. let it play out. You don't have to make that decision now. I gave the same answers last year when people, after five, six weeks, are trying to decide what you want to do on Daniel's contract in the offseason. And my answer is always, you don't need to decide that now. You need to figure that out at the end of the year. Yeah. So um, you'll have a whole lot more data coming your way, and you know, you'll figure that out when you get there. Because, look, it, this schedule's not the toughest. You know, you've gotten past the toughest part of it. We kind of talked about that already. I mean, there's a path here to, to seven, eight wins, in which case it's going to be hard to get to where you want to go, yeah. uh, even if you're at six wins, right, to get where you want to go in terms of if you're in the – I'm not saying I am, but if you're in the neighborhood of trying to go get a quarterback, you know, there's enough teams that are going to have worse records than you that need a quarterback that aren't going to wait and trade back or have a better chance to trade up. So that could be tough anyway. Yeah, and, and we play a few of them, right? We play the Patriots. We play the Packers. We're going to play the Raiders this upcoming week. Even I mean, actually, even the Saints might want a young Saints, quarterback at some yep. point, right? So, to me, that is also a reason why you don't trade Saquon, right? Not only because you want to evaluate quarterback, but you want to evaluate Wandell, you know, in a legitimate offensive scheme for once. You want to evaluate Hyatt in a legitimate offensive scheme. You know, JMS, you don't want him to just be getting 35 plays on offense a game because we can't stay on the field, right? So, to me the conversation for for a guy like Saquon goes past what we can get, right? I, I hear people, you know, with the face of the franchise stuff. I get that. But I think removing Saquon kind of hinders a lot more development than removing Leo Williams does for the defense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the analytics say quality of running back does not impact play action. I watch with my eyes on coaches tape every Monday morning how teams reacted to the Giants' play-action game without Saquon and with Saquon. It's night and day. I mean, you saw guys on the weak side of that defensive line 
not even go down the line after the running back and just go after the quarterback on those play action boots. Like they just did not care. Like you want to run it? Go ahead. We don't care. Don't care. When Saquon's in the game, it's different. It, it's a different equation. And he almost had a receiving touchdown against the Jets if C.J. Mosley doesn't knock that ball down at the line of scrimmage. I mean, he's wide yeah. open. That, that, that is yeah. a touchdown. Um, on, on tape, it, trust me, it, it, it's, it's a touchdown. And he's just – he's the one player on offense, even with their younger guy and the other receivers they had in the offseason. Now Darren Waller's going to be out for you know multiple weeks. We'll see what that means exactly. But he – He's a headache, and and player and other teams have the game plan for him, and we've seen the, the fairly large sample size of Daniel Jones's numbers with Saquon versus without, and there's a difference. Um, he's much better when Saquon's on the field. So, uh, with the way the Giants' offense is structured and the players that they have, um, he certainly makes a difference. And if he's not out there, you're right. I think evaluating this offense becomes much much tougher. Yeah. Um, just to touch on some of the Jet side of things. Yeah. Um. I am probably as big of a fan as you'll find of Brees Hall. I think he is the quintessential three-down running back. You know, first down, second down, can run through your face. And then third down, I mean, he's a natural pass catcher. Except for that one drop against the Giants. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, he he also kind of earned himself some some leeway with with that touchdown. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.